From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. As inevitable as death is, it's not something that we generally associate with happy endings. And although it would be wrong to say that voluntary assisted dying is anywhere near a happy experience for patients and their families, there is a word that I'm repeatedly hearing in conversations about assisted dying, and that is peaceful. And it's, it's made me very curious. This episode is the second in our two-part special series on voluntary assisted dying. Joining us in the tea room are two guests. In a little while, we'll be speaking with Dr. Cameron McLaren. He's a medical oncologist at Monash Health and Director of Voluntary Assisted Dying Australia and New Zealand. First up, though, is Dr. David Ward. He's a GP in Albany, Regional Western Australia. He also assists patients who choose voluntary assisted dying. Dr. Ward is also a general practitioner obstetrician, which gives him the privileged position of the beginnings of life as well as the endings. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Ward. Yes, that's a pleasure, Wendy, and thanks for asking me. Dr. Ward, what made you decide to do this kind of work? Well, it's a very personal type of work, and I guess I have lots of motivations. I think it allows us to get a a very deep connection with patients and allows us to spend time with them and their families and learning about their backgrounds and it it certainly can be challenging and it certainly can be interesting but I think I think most of all for me I strongly believe in everyone having a choice and a choice about most things in their life as long as it that choice doesn't involve direct harm to anybody else and I certainly think somebody's ultimate choice is how they might want to manage the end of their life when there's considerable suffering and that would be that would be my main motivation probably from a from an ideological point of view is that a viewpoint that you've held throughout your training and early years as well or is it something that evolved once you became a practicing doctor probably came since i've been a practicing doctor i've been a gp for about 25 years or so now and of course throughout that time you especially being a general practitioner in a in a more regional area you meet lots of different patients and people from lots of different backgrounds and you do see a lot of significant illness, stress and suffering and certainly in the for many years before voluntary assisted dying became legal in Western Australia which has been about 18 months now I've considered it a good thing to have available for people who want to make that choice it's as, it, I guess it's as a as a GP that it's been brought closer to me. You're also you're a GPO. Yeah, I can't imagine you would have any discussions relating to voluntary assisted dying with the obstetric side of things. No, well, that's very true. Yes, it's almost like the circle of life. One comes into the world and one goes out of the world, and you know I think there. Are two things that are inevitable and that is that we all have to be born and we all have to die 
and no matter what your belief system or how you look at it, they are inevitabilities. So, yeah, certainly from the obstetric point of view, obstetrics is actually quite different to a lot of other areas of medicine because you're, in a lot of cases, not actually dealing with ill health and disease. You're participating or guiding someone through a journey which thankfully mostly ends very positively, um, although not always. However, with voluntary assisted dying, you know, it, it is the opposite. You're in many cases interacting with people who are a lot older and have had a lot of different experiences in their life and often the last years to months or, or weeks of their life has been extremely challenging and difficult for physical and psychological reasons and can be associated with a lot of suffering. So I see it as as a privilege to be in the position where you possibly may be able to help them out. Do you find the obstetrics a nice counterbalance to the end of life? Or I can imagine obstetrics is generally a very very happy, satisfying, lots of joy and love in the room. Is it completely the opposite for voluntary assisted dying? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, certainly mostly obstetrics is very positively ending and happy, although very occasionally it doesn't end up that way, but certainly in 99 or more percent of the obstetrics that we deal with in Albany, which is lower risk, that would be the case. But it is interesting what you say about voluntary assisted dying, although initially maybe for some people when they first think about that, it may feel quite negative and final and perhaps saddening and depressing. But in my experience, it's not always like that. And sometimes it can be a celebratory experience might be going a little bit far, but there's certainly no doubt that you're often dealing with people who are at the other end of a very long journey, have been through a lot of experiences, have done a lot of thinking and discussion with their family and friends, and I've certainly had some very lovely experiences with voluntary assisted dying at people's houses, you know, with their families, with their with their pets, with a surrounding and situation which can be which can be nice and more positive than what you might initially think, if that makes sense. Is there perhaps a story that you might share with us of an example that exemplifies that? Yeah. One case in particular that I remember was of a guy who lives locally and who requested voluntary assisted dying. He was of Indigenous background and there had been a lot of preparation for this day which had involved his family and some of his community members to prepare for it. Apart from myself and him, his wife was present and his three children were present and his dog was present and also joining us online were some of his 
family from further up north and they'd together written a song about his exit from the world, which was a very lovely thing to experience. And it was a very peaceful, relieving journey and experience for him when voluntary assisted dying did occur. After that had occurred, some of his colleagues, friends, family visited his house and they conducted some cultural ceremony and rituals in preparation for him to enter the next phase of his life. So it was quite a lovely experience and quite an educational experience for me to get a little bit of an insight as to how different people of different philosophies and people of different cultural backgrounds approach the end of their life and approach death and approach what that might mean afterwards. I mean, that's a a remarkable story. I imagine not all experiences are that remarkable. Would you say that most of the experiences you've been involved with are more positive than negative? How does how would it weigh out? I guess saying positive or negative can be a little bit of a difficult way to describe. Mm. Certainly, you know, the 15 or 20 that I've been involved in so far, they've all been extremely ready for that day, if I could put it that way. They've all been well prepared for that day and they've all been surrounded by a lot of family, friends and a very supportive environment which has made it almost exclusively peaceful, positive experience because I guess you're often dealing with people who have been through an enormous amount of trauma, stress, suffering, which they've thought about and discussed at length. And the timing so far seems to be right for them. I'm sure that it may not always be that way, but for me so far it has. And I genuinely feel that it has been a positive thing to have this as an option in Western Australia. I think it was probably long overdue and it's been almost universally very well received. We're probably still in our infancy in our experience with some of the machinations of it and certainly in a regional area because of distance, things do take a little bit longer and can be a little bit trickier to access, which can come with its problems, but that may change in time. What ethical aspects were important for you when deciding to do this kind of work? Well, I guess all of us in life, but certainly all of us who do medicine of some sort would deal with moral and ethical things on a day-to-day basis on some level. But certainly in some ways, it's one of the, the ultimate personally ethical decisions as to whether you want to be the person who delivers a voluntary assisted dying substance to someone. And it certainly isn't something that everyone is comfortable doing. But I think that for me, I I see death as a part of life and it's going to happen to all of us. For some people, there may be the opportunity to have some sort of say or control or influence as to when and where that might be. 
And if it is somebody who has got an incurable, irresolvable medical problem, which is existentially causing significant suffering to them that cannot be resolved to the level that they would like it to be, and I'm convinced that they are adequately informed and understand what that process is and are voluntary and under no other coercion or pressure, then I feel comfortable with that. I certainly feel on some level that, you know, it's an honour to be able to help in some way, but I certainly understand that that is not for everyone. Might I ask, what was your first experience like and does it become something that you're more accustomed to? My very first experience is I joined a colleague before I had actually delivered voluntary assisted dying. I joined a colleague of mine for administration so that I got that experience. And my experience is that it's been almost inevitably a process that's been under-stressing and painless and relieving for the person who is receiving it because they've been extremely ready. And in most circumstances, those that have been in attendance, including myself, I guess, have felt the same. But it's certainly, it's certainly a big thing. And I don't think there's any getting away from what it means ultimately. And I could certainly understand that for some people that wouldn't be something that they would be comfortable being a part of. And I would respect that. And I'd also, you know, hopefully expect that they respect those who do choose to be involved in helping someone down that path. Yeah, they're my general feelings. In some jurisdictions, yeah, doctors are unable to initiate conversations about voluntary assisted dying as an end-of-life option. Are you able to in Western Australia? In Western Australia, the legislation allows us to do that as long as at the same time we explore or check with the patient that there has been some exploration of alternative options to VAD such as disease-modifying treatment or palliative care options. And do you have any suggestions around how doctors broach that topic without, I guess, that sense of coercion, which is a major legal concern for many doctors and an ethical concern as well? For a lot of the people that I have seen, by the time that I've seen them, they've been referred to me for a voluntary assisted dying assessment. So they're already well down that path. So there's only one or two people in which I have instigated the discussion myself. And the two that I'm thinking of have been long-term patients of mine over a number of years, both of who have very, very in stage difficult conditions at the moment uh, for which we can see that the, the current options are not satisfactorily resolving their suffering. How was that topic received by the patients? With relief in, in both instances. It's often gone down, you know, along the lines of seeing them several times over a number of weeks and the physical and psychological and emotional deterioration has been very evident and most other disease curing or disease relieving treatment has long been stopped 
and they've both been involved in full-scale palliative care. Yet despite that, I thought I could see their suffering. And so I raised as an option that they may know that voluntary assisted dying is now legal in Western Australia. And had they ever heard of that? And would it be something that they would like to discuss? And their reply was, thank goodness you asked me that. My wife and I have been thinking about that and talking about that. Can you give us some information? So, so far, that's how it's gone. But I certainly understand that it would be a challenging thing to initiate for some people, and particularly if it's a patient that they don't have a long-term relationship with. It just reinforces that important role of the GP in the community, those long-term relationships. Yeah, Mm. yeah. I think so, and I, th- I think that we're still in a very lucky and privileged position to be able to do that. And yeah, I agree with that often. As you say, we've may have known that person for a long time, and also know their family and some of those other circumstances as well. Just because a doctor is accredited to assist with voluntary assisted dying doesn't mean that they have to do all stages of that entire process or it doesn't mean that they have to actually administer the pharmacy either, is it? They could just do the assessment or they could do one element of it? Yes, that's true. There has to be two doctors involved. One's called the coordinating practitioner or coordinating doctor who does the initial assessment and the final assessment. And it may be that the person would like and is suitable for self-administrated voluntary assisted dying, which they take, they mix up and take themselves if they're suitable and capable and wanting to do that. Otherwise, it's a practitioner administrated voluntary assisted dying, which the coordinating practitioner would do. And in between that, there's what they call a consulting practitioner, which everybody has to have two assessments to make sure that there's been satisfactory legal assessment of the patient. Yeah. So there are certainly some people who are trained in voluntary assisted dying and will only be the consulting practitioner. So there's many options, yeah. And what is it you think that makes it something that you are able to do? I think it's a deeply human and deeply philosophical and personal thing. Medicine is a privilege to be able to do in all aspects and it can be very guided and scientifically driven and regimented. But on the other side of the coin, it still can be a very interpersonal human art form. And I'd like to think that I enjoy spending time with people, getting to know them and what they're about, not just to do with their underlying disease, but them as a person in their life and as a member of a community and a human in their own right. It's certainly an area of medicine where you can practice it more as an interpersonal art form on some level. I don't know whether I explained that very well there. I think you explained that beautifully. That was Dr David Ward, GP and General Practitioner Obstetrician from Albany, Western Australia. Our next guest is Dr Karen McLaren, 
He's been involved in over 250 voluntary assisted dying processes. As you can imagine, it's quite a heavy workload. Dr. McLaren is a medical oncologist at Monash Health and director of VDANS, Voluntary Assisted Dying Australia and New Zealand. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. McLaren. Well, thank you very much for having me, Wendy. It's really a great opportunity to have a chat about a topic I find very important for our patients. Well, it's so important to you that you were founder of or one of the founding members of VADANS. Could you tell us a little bit about that network? Yeah, sure. So I guess when we started as the first state in Australia and Victoria with assisted dying, we were kind of learning as we go a lot of the time. And we found what we had was the Community of Practice, which is an online forum that VAD trained doctors in the state. Very helpful. So we could talk about what each of us thought in terms of eligibility or looking at things like coercion, assessing capacity, and having those general discussions with other doctors who were practicing in the area. Then when we found that the other states were starting up, we actually started getting inquiries from other states' doctors saying, is it possible for us to join the your community of practice? So the whole concept of that ends was basically just to start as a forum for discussion across those jurisdictions so that we could share our experiences. What are some of the most common questions doctors ask? Yes, yeah, good question. I think we, we brush on a lot of topics. I guess the most common would probably be how we explore coercion. That's, I guess, the biggest concern that many of us have. How do we ask about it? How do we explore it? any signs that there might be coercion from family members for a patient to be undergoing assisted dying? Because I think that's that's really the biggest concern that people have is that no one really wants to do this for any other reason other than they want to. And and I think that goes to the name of it being voluntary, is that it's really important for us to maintain that and to be guardians of that as well. How do you be a guardian of that when you have concerns about coercion? I guess we were most worried about that in the VAD assessments, but what we've actually learned along the way is that we don't encounter that very often. We actually get the opposite. Um, this has been reiterated by the Victorian Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board in that we often see coercion away from voluntary assisted dying. So the patient wants to do this and then we see the families actually saying, we don't want you to. We don't. Really? Um, yeah, I had a patient a couple of weeks ago who ended up applying too late and died during the application process, which is not uncommon. But he was quite upset because he wanted to apply for assisted dying around six months ago. And he actually said, I felt pushed into treatment. So he underwent more treatment, and which really, unfortunately, didn't really improve his quality of life over that next six-month period. And he had a lot of regret about not applying sooner. So we definitely see a lot of coercion away from assisted dying, but not so much towards. There's been one case where I was involved in that was the coercion was a concern. And how I dealt with that was, I guess, aggressively and thoroughly. So I actually did a home visit every day of that week where it was brought up and I had multiple both group sessions with the family, individual sessions with each member of the family, phone calls to the general practitioner to try and explore what had been raised as a concern. Ultimately, that, that what, the way that case turned out was that the son had told his mother about the existence of voluntary assisted dying, but as soon as she heard of it, she realised that was actually what she wanted. And by the end, I was convinced that that was the case. I don't think that there was any coercion at play, so we were able to proceed. Can I ask a question about the remuneration side of things? It takes a lot of time to do that kind of work. 
How do you factor that into your personal remuneration? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty hot topic at the moment. So there, there are the rebate, rebates available for the consultations regarding assisted dying eligibility. None of us should do this job for the, the money. It's all it's very, I must say, altruistic about providing patients access to something that they want. This is really all about patient-centred care, but we do have a right to be remunerated fairly. I encourage everyone to to privately bill for assisted dying services because the rebated fees really don't cover the work that is involved, particularly when you talk about time-based consultation for GPs because a lot of the work is actually done away from the patient and, and is in doing paperwork, applications, discussion with other, with other practitioners. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work. So I do factor that into my private fees. Because every system is different in each state, there's a Vatans Victoria schedule of fees or the recommended schedule of fees, which is just basically an estimate of how much time it takes to complete each state. So doctors can set their own fees according to the, the average expected time we talk about. What are some of the common misnomers about voluntary assisted dying? Yeah, I think the one that really gets me is is the persistence or the insistence on the use of the term assisted suicide or, or using the word suicide in this context. The World Medical Association and the American Medical Association's definition is of called physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, but really what we're talking about is a, is a decision from patients about how they are going to die. It's not about whether they are going to die what we often talk about is that this is a decision between death and death. It's not a decision between life and death, which is usually what we associate with suicide. So we think it's very distinct from that. So that, that's probably the biggest one that we talk about. I guess the other is the concerns or the prevalence of coercion in the area as well. So as I mentioned previously, that we really don't see a lot of coercion. And I think that's because these patients are dying and they're dying within the next six months by definition, otherwise they're not eligible. So I don't think that there's much incentive for people to push people towards assisted dying because they are dying anyway. It's it's not suicide, so we're not talking about people wanting inheritance that they need now but otherwise wouldn't get for 10 years. We, don't, we just don't see that. So there are a lot of social factors that need consideration, but coercion is not, not a main one in practice. What is a likely emotional journey experienced by a doctor who's starting to embark on participating in voluntary assisted dying? I I appreciate that everyone is so radically different and Mm. that there also might be some commonalities in the emotional experience of doctors. What a good question. And and you're right, it's very broad, I guess, but I suppose what, what I can talk to is my own involvement and my own experience. And I guess elements of that have certainly been reflected in the way that other doctors have talked to me about their involvement as well. But the way I started was it was really born out of patient-centred care and, and upholding patient wishes, and it had nothing to do with the propagation of assisted dying or, or assisted dying itself. It was just that this law is coming in, patients are going to want it, and I'm and I believe in diagnosis to death care. And as someone who I was going to care for weeks, months, or years, I didn't feel uncomfortable. Oh, I didn't feel comfortable having to refer them on to someone else for their final steps along that journey. So it was really about 
just upholding patient wishes and, and walking the journey with them. So I guess starting on that, it was it was nervous, I guess is a very good word, because and uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty about how you're going to be perceived. How have so, you been how have you been perceived? Depends who you ask. Generally I get the feedback that many doctors are uncomfortable and, and, and not willing to be involved, but they are glad that this process is available and they're glad that there are doctors who are providing service. So I do get appreciative feedback i get respectful a lot of respectful disagreement i get some some disrespectful disagreement as well but that's quite minimal it's a very diplomatic way of putting it yeah and i think it's really important to recognize that we all have different perspectives on this and the only perspective that matters is that of the patient who's either applying or not applying for assisted dying so i don't know whether i would want assisted dying and I don't know that any of us really know that until we're faced with that situation. But I do know that if that is part of my end of life that wishes, then I would really like someone there to be able to assist me with that. And I think my patients deserve that, that right as well. There's a spectrum of conscientious objection. How does a doctor who might have some concerns about the ethics of voluntary assisted dying, how can they work through some of those ethical processes? I don't know that anyone really needs to work towards changing their mind on this topic. I think whatever perspective you have is completely valid and should be protected and supported. So for anyone who does have a conscientious objection, I think they should feel validated in that. And that's okay. Not all of us want to be neurosurgeons. Not all of us want to do colonoscopies. We all have our areas of discomfort and we're free to choose the areas that we're practicing accordingly. And we should be supported in saying, look, I'm not comfortable providing that. But I think what's missing is the communication skills to be able to respectfully decline involvement as opposed to implying that the patient's making the wrong decision or the wrong call. It's really about saying, look, I hear what you're saying and I understand your request. That's not something that I'm comfortable with and I'm afraid that I can't help you on that issue. I do acknowledge how difficult it is for you to raise this with someone, and I'm sorry that that's just not something that I participate in. There's a space with that conversation with the patient of referral as well? Yeah, so then the next question is, well, should doctors be obliged to refer? And I'm not sure about that. I think they should be encouraged to. I don't think they should be forced to. I think when I refer on to any subspecialist, then I'm not complicit with the outcome of that assessment and, and service delivery. I'm not responsible for a perforated bowel for someone else's colonoscopy if I referred them for a colonoscopy or I'm not I'm not responsible for that. So but other people may feel different. And so I would encourage them that there is a way for you to set up your own boundaries and still maintain that the patient gets access to the care that they feel is appropriate and relevant to their needs, which is the first point of the Australian Charter for Healthcare Rights is access to healthcare that is relevant to the patient's needs. And a point that I've come to know through this is that there's also conscientious involvement that I think is becoming more of an issue these days. So we have nurses who want to be involved in the process and there's currently no role for them within the Victorian legislation. In other jurisdictions, they are utilising nurses for some parts of the process. We have palliative care units and community palliative care services that are not in favour of assisted dying. We have patients being transferred out of palliative care units in order to engage in assisted dying or administer voluntary assisted dying medication. And in talking to some of the nurses in the palliative care units, it's really upsetting for them. So we're also in a situation where we have limitations on conscientious involvement as well. 
Hooking back in, I, I went down a few rabbit holes there with you. Hooking back into your emotional journey, in that, starting with nervousness, understandably. How long ago was that and what's happened between then and now? Yeah, I, I said nervousness or uncertainty. I was very nervous. My first case was one of the first 10 or so in, in Victoria and she was a lady with lung cancer who didn't respond to treatments and quickly became chair-bound and elected to pursue assistance. So I went through the process, was hit with, with her and her family and because it was the first time I made sure I was present at each of the steps and, and there when the pharmacy was there and, and, and with their with their blessing was there when she took the medication as well and passed away peacefully at home. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty, particularly with, I guess, the medication. We don't use this medication in any other field of medicine. So you're putting faith in this medication and this dose that you're told is definitive, but that's that's uncertain as you're waiting for the patient after they fall asleep and waiting to see what happens next. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. I think the next point was really the line between the line of practitioner administration or having to administer the medication intravenously to someone. And that was, that opted, that happened on October 31st, I think it was in 2019 to a gentleman by the name of Phil. And that really was confronting because again, as an oncologist, I don't use the medications that we use. I certainly don't use them in the doses that we have. I don't often administer the medications, nor I never really administer intravenous medication. That's always done by nurses. Even down to, am I going to get a intravenous access? Can I still do it? Thankfully, I'm not too distant from my training, so I'm still comfortable putting like citing IV lines. But that's certainly a concern that's brought up in the community of practice. But I guess from an emotional and ethical standpoint, it was also just how was I going to react to to my own involvement in ending a patient's life, albeit at their request. And I guess when I was thinking about that, I didn't really know. And I said, look, I'm just going to have to go ahead and then see how I react to it and if I'm really affected by this, it might have to be something that I reconsider. But I think it's much easier is not the right word, but it's much more comfortable when you're actually involved in the case and the patient and have heard their wishes come from their mouth about what they want and actually put a face and a voice to the wish to to proceed with this. It's a lot less daunting than than just talking about the the concept of administering medication to end a in a nameless, faceless patient's life. That's that's really very uncomfortable topic of conversation, but I think it's really important to apply it to an individual. Um, I'm really appreciating your your transparency about this. Please, yeah, go on. Oh, thanks. So I remember administering the medication and everything went very smoothly and he fell asleep with his wife on one arm and his daughter on the other and his sons around put in his bed, toasting him with a with a whiskey. And he died peacefully in his own house where he wanted to and he was comfortable and it was very peaceful. And I remember leaving and just, I guess I was just waiting for the impact of what had just happened to set in. And it didn't really. It, the, the hammer never fell. It never really struck me as, as that much of a conflict. And I think that was actually more concerning than if it did hit me, to be honest, because I started wondering, this was really a momentous thing or a big line to cross. Why isn't this a bigger deal for me? Why am I not more negatively affected by that? And to the point I was being interviewed by Andrew Denton about it, and I said, am I a psychopath? How, do, how, how am I okay with this? But I remember Andrew actually saying to me, well, 
I think it just comes out of conflict. I mean, were you conflicted about what you were doing? And I said, no, and Phil really wanted this. He was suffering terribly. And we, with his blessing and his family's blessing, we ended his suffering. And so I think the lack of the conflict in that situation was really what made it much easier to, to proceed with and to deal with the aftermath of so I was going to ask a question about self-care just in terms of this work, is it? but I think it oversimplifies it from what you've been talking about. No, that's a good question. And I often find that my involvement in assisted dying is actually self-care from some of the other conflicting oncology work that I do. Is that right? Yeah. You know, sometimes we think, is it right to give chemo? Is it not? You know, borderline cases, uncertainty. We run into severe toxicity of chemotherapy and we wonder whether we've done the patient a net benefit or not. There's, there's a lot of that kind of uncertainty and conflict in our regular work anyway. And, and this actually gives a situation where a lot of that really goes out the window and you just say, look, what's most important is what the patient wants and let's just get on with it. But So I don't require a lot of self-care. I think the problem is for me particularly is that in Victoria, one of the two assessing doctors in an assisted dying case needs to be a specialist in the area of disease that the patient has. So as a medical oncologist trained and willing to do VAD assessments, willing to do home visits, willing to do practitioner administration, I've been involved in over 250 cases now and and often multiple at the same time. And at the moment, you know, on Monday, I saw one new patient for the first time. I did paperwork with two other patients. I had another permit come through for another patient. So this, when they all happen at the same time, and some of these can be quite urgent, you know, patients who, you know, they don't want to die, but ultimately they realise that actually they are pretty late in their disease and they do need to organise this if, if they do want it to be part of their, their end of life experience and particularly at the moment I think a lot of people have gotten through Christmas and New Year mainly for their family to be honest and, and, and they've been otherwise suffering so now that we've we're through those important parts of the year for people we are actually seeing a, a bigger influx of patients wanting to apply so the, the problem is really when they all come at once. And how does that work within when a bulk of your workload right now appears to be voluntary assisted dying? Yeah, I, I think you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, in, particularly in cancer care, really. If you think you can make someone's quality or quantity of life better, usually quality, then we do that. But at some point, we're going to lose the game. When someone has incurable metastatic cancer, we're fighting a losing battle. And sometimes the only way that you can direct the care is, in what way are we going to lose this battle? And sometimes that comes up in regular conversations as well. We talk about people who present with renal obstruction and are going to renal failure. And the decision is, do we stent them now? Do we allow them to die through kidney failure? Because they might say that's from a cancer that's causing other symptoms or is going to cause their death another way. Sometimes we choose what we do to steer the patient towards type of death. So we do know that kidney failure deaths are generally painless and symptoms can be managed well. Other deaths such as from end-stage respiratory failure, erosion of arteries in the neck from head and neck cancers, they can be horrible. So we sometimes do make these decisions to choose the manner of death already. We're, we're already doing this. So. I think that's a really important distinction to make in that oncologists are making these decisions regularly as a part of their 
day to day, week to week, month to month, whereas GPs are not involved in those sorts of decisions in the same way. So for a GP to be thinking about end of life and how that happens is probably an entirely different mindset to an oncologist. Absolutely. And I think on an individual level as well, I mean, I've had some discussions recently about what's the role of the doctor and, and there are still there are people who feel that the job is to protect and extend life at all costs and I think we're shifting away from that as I think society's shown us that they don't want us to do that, that we're really there as patient advocates. And I always talk about us as being very well educated and servants, but doctors have always been there to serve their patients and that's what we're doing. And I think GPs are actually very good at this because they they see further than the cancer and they see further than the, than the neurological disease or whatever's going on. They've known the patient for a lot longer. They might treat their family member and they've got insight into their family dynamics that we don't. And so I think this kind of care is actually best done when the regular GP is involved. I guess the problem that we have at the moment is that although there has been a reasonable uptake of assisted dying training in GPs, it's still lacking. Not just to single out GPs, we're lacking in all specialties. I think we're lacking in medical oncology more so than anything, given the number of cases that I've had to be involved in. And this also, it's quite selfishly, this goes back to the self-care point, is that I think many hands make light work and it would be really nice to be able to share this workload with other people. And I think (laughs) there is self-care, but there is also care of your colleagues and as well. So I would encourage people to, who are not opposed to assisted dying to consider doing the training at least and then considering their involvement thereafter. You have a huge range of resources on Vedans and that peer support group for people who, doctors who are curious about a few points in particular, they can go and talk to and engage with doctors and have those conversations. Yeah, and I would hope in a, in a protected environment. It is a place to talk about things that you're with people who are in favour and supportive of, of the whole process and we're actually going to answer your questions about the, the logistics and the actual concerns rather than the what-ifs and whether you should. Anything else that you'd like to add? I think I'd really like to emphasise that I think assisted dying is here to stay. It's There's legislation in, now in every state in Australia. The territories are now free to debate their own legislation and I think they'll work at bringing in their, their own versions of the legislation. So this is now part of the healthcare landscape and end-of-life care options within Australia. It's not a question of whether we should anymore. It's a question of how we do it and how we do it safely. And I think the doctors who are listening are probably best positioned to ensure the safety of their patients by getting involved in doing this. So I'd really encourage anyone listening to consider doing the training and participating. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your personal journey in this as well. Thanks, Dr. McLaren. You're very welcome. Thank you, Wendy. That was Dr. Cameron McLaren, medical oncologist at Monash Health and director of Vedans, Voluntary Assisted Dying Australia and New Zealand. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the tea room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.